Thank you, Mary Catherine. I'm very, very loud. You are. Um, Mary Catherine asked me to uh, discuss that uh, song a little bit because there's a great tension in the Bible between are the gods a real thing? Is, uh, are there, is God the supreme God among all gods or is God, uh, are, are, are idols and false gods real things or are they no thing? And there's a real tension in the Old Testament between those two lanes. And, and, uh, and Psalm 82 seems to poetically live on both sides of that camp where the gods are a real thing that can be distracting and, and, uh, and deter us from doing what God has called us to do. And the gods can be no thing, uh, which, uh, which need to be ignored as well. So it's an interesting psalm because the other thing that it's relating to is ruling the people. And, and it's interesting uh, to look at that in the context of how most rulers in the ancient world referred to themselves as some sort of God. And despite their divinity, they were unable to care for the people. The, the instructions of our God, uh, Father of heaven and earth, creator of everything, of Yahweh, were to, if you're so divine, why can't you take care of your people? Then there's this interesting complexity to the world that we're going to keep looking at today as we continue our series on, on wisdom of, of how ought we to relate to a complex world. And if, if, if the goal that we have as followers of Jesus is to live lives that are right and just and fair, and, and behave in such a way that demonstrates the goodness of our God to the world. And, and we should live the way of life that we're being called to live, that, 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 sorry, we ought to behave in such a way that demonstrates the goodness of the God that we're following and demonstrates to other people the life that we're calling them to live as well. If we're to, to be disciples of Jesus, then, then it is incumbent upon us to live lives that are right and just and fair, that, that our behavior ought to change because of the following of Jesus. And this is a really important thing, because and we approach with wisdom, because there's ways in which we can live a right way, and yet because of a lack of wisdom, people can't hear that on the other side. This became very clear to me uh, uh, when I saw uh, a statement by, by uh, Franklin Graham this week. And I think Franklin Graham... Um, is a, if you're not familiar, he's really one, one of Billy Graham's sons. He's done some amazing work with Operation Christmas Child that is a, a good charity that does good things, but he also says stupid things in public that get him in a lot of trouble. And it's very unfortunate for him because his work is good and then his words are kind of dumb often. And, but because his words are kind of dumb often, people can't see the right actions that he has. And there's this breakdown in wisdom where you're right, but it doesn't matter. And I think that's a place where we find ourselves a lot as followers of Jesus, where we're right, but, we can't, but it doesn't matter because we can't figure out a way to communicate that rightness in love and caring and in a way that people can actually understand. If we lack empathy in our speech, then we lack the credibility to speak truth into our own lives and the lives of the people around us. And we need to do better at being wise. And we need to do better at being wise when we talk about all things, but specifically when we talk about marriage. And, and I don't like to talk about marriage a ton. I don't do a ton of sermons on it. I don't do a series on seven ways to make your marriage better just because I don't think that that's the most important thing that we do. But I do think that it's important for us to talk about marriage and talk about it well, because this is an institution that matters. People are getting married in this world. And while they may be getting later, 
sorry, getting married later, and why they, while they may be getting, uh, uh, and can, well, they're getting married later in life, and that the rate of marriage is slower. Um, it's uh, it, people are still getting married, and as much as it's hard to believe, uh, divorce rates are actually going down. Believe it or not, since the since the 80s, you know, and, and I think part of that is because fewer couples are getting married in general. But it, as a contrary to what the world will tell you, divorce rates are actually going down. There's fewer overall marriages. There's overall uh, people are getting married older, and, and there's fewer divorces. And this institution matters. And we need to be clear as we talk about this institution what the Bible actually says. Because there are lies in this culture and in this world about what marriage is for and the importance that it plays in our lives. And there are lives that, lies that have permeated the church about what marriage is for as well. And, and if we're going to get in wars as a church about marriage, as we have for a good chunk as the evangelical churches, we've gotten in wars for a good chunk of the last 20 to 30 years, we need to make sure that if we're going to fight with the world about something, that we're fighting over something that we actually understand what our own teaching says. We may need to make sure that the institution we're defending is the institution that actually exists. And I, as a faith leader, as a church leader, get concerned often that the marriage I hear my brothers and sisters defending is not a marriage that has anything to do with the marriage that I see in Scripture. And that's a problem. Because if we find ourselves defending something that the world, uh, and, uh, and going to war over something that isn't recognized in this book, then, then we've got a problem. We're, we're deferring our energy in incorrect places. And we're, and we're losing credibility with the world that desperately needs to hear our good news. So what does Jesus actually say about marriage? And we're going to start with this one because I think it's a fascinating place. So this is from Matthew chapter 19. And Pharisees were a, a group of teachers of the law, and, uh, and they came to Jesus and they asked him a legal question about marriage to try and trip him up. So Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, is it lawful? for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. Now, this is an interesting place, because this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Um, uh, it, it comes from this verse. So they were referring to a legal point in the law. Deuteronomy chapter 24 says this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, give it to her, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house, becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends, it, sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she had been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord, do not bring sin upon the land uh, the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. It's odd to me, some of the laws in Deuteronomy, how specific they are, because you're like, how often did this happen? That a lady was getting divorced from one dude and then marrying another dude, and then that ended, and then she wants to go back to the first dude. Like, how, is this a really that big of an issue to deal with? But this is the law that they're talking about. And specifically, the question that they're asking is, is Moses allowed for uh, divorce if the husband found something indecent about the wife? So the, the legal question that they're asking him to walk into is, what does something indecent mean? 
Now, this fell into two legal camps. It was the school of Rabbi Hillel, and Rabbi Hillel believed that something indecent could be anything at all. It could be, uh, I've heard examples of burning breakfast. I've heard examples of like not having the house cleaned well enough. I've heard examples of speaking too loudly in the streets. All of those things could make a woman displeasing to her husband, and he could give her a certificate of divorce according to Rabbi Hillel. The other school of thought at the time was Rabbi Shimei, who believed that something indecent referred only to adultery. That was the only reason why you could give uh, a certificate of divorce. And there, was, and there was much conflict between these two schools of thought. So the Pharisees are asking Jesus to jump into this argument and basically asking him, do you side with Rabbi Shimei or Rabbi Hillel? And normally, that's what he would do. He would, he would jump in, a rabbi would jump into one of those two camps and say, well, I side with Rabbi Hillel because he says that you should be allowed to divorce for any reason, and, or I side with Rabbi Shimei. But Jesus does something entirely different because rather than going to Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shimei, he instead goes to Moses. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, and therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus bypasses Deuteronomy 24 altogether and goes straight to Genesis chapter 2. Rather than making a legal argument, he makes a created order, order argument, saying that God created this and it was good, and you're splitting it up for no reason. Now they asked him to nuance that. They said, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus responded, oh yeah, and there, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So, in essence, he does side with Rabbi Shimei, like he does take that stance and, and, and say that, that, that uh, adultery is the only thing that is displeasing, which is interesting. Because uh, he often sides with Hillel when he chooses to. Uh, but what's most interesting is he's not making an argument about Deuteronomy 23. He's making an argument about Genesis chapter 2. He skips it all and goes right back to the created order. And, and the disciples said it, and this is very interesting to me. If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. How fascinating for the disciples that they say at this moment that, like, wait a minute. If you can't get out of this easily, then it's better for us to not get into this at all, right? And what does Jesus say to this? Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only to those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And the one who can accept this should accept it. Now we've already talked about talked about before what units are. Um, so I hopefully I don't have to explain that again. But it's interesting the three categories that that are put that way. That there's some people that are going to be exempt from marriage at birth, whether we like it or not. It's unfortunate, but that's the reality. That's not going to be a, that's a, that's not going to be a, an avenue that is open to them. And 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 God says that's a gift of its own giving. You're already exempt from. 
There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. There are some people that are going to be exempt from marriage against their choice. That is also a gift from the Lord. And there are some who are going to choose this gift of their own accord because for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, the one who can accept this should accept it. Now this is interesting because what Jesus does is he turns the ante up on the Torah law and says it's bigger and greater than what you have expected. It's not about what defines your legal loophole to be able to get out of marriage. It's about being faithful to what God has called you to be a part of. But he also does something that is drastically culturally different than what existed at the time when he says that marriage is of secondary importance in the kingdom of God. It was interesting that at the, uh, at the time, the conventionally culturally accepted uh, mode of being in, in, in Jesus' day was that if you were not married past the age of 20, for any other reason than that you were studying the law, you were committing a sin because you were not following through with the command to go forth and multiply. And Jesus takes that command and he turns it on his head and says, no, 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 no. That's not what it's about. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about seeking his will. It's about following in his way. And marriage and procreation come secondarily to that. It's a drastic cultural change where he says that those who marry and those who choose to remain unmarried, the kingdom of God, are both valuable. And it's very important that we, as followers of Jesus, understand that Jesus viewed both marriage and singleness as a gift from God. And we need to prioritize it that way. And Jesus does this again when the Sadducees come to him with a legal question. So this happens in um, Matthew chapter 22, uh, where the Sadducees, which are a different group of legal scholars, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't. They believe that once you're dead, you're dead. That's their. They were. They, you could make them the equivalent of kind of theological liberal thinkers today. But the same day, Sadducees, not the same day. This is the same day as something else. But uh, not the same day as the previous question, but another same day. But the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, and his brother must marry, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. And the same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. And finally, the woman died. Now then. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? Now, this is really interesting because they're trying to use this law to trip Jesus up. They, they're really, they really don't care about marriage at this time point, but they do care about the resurrection. And this is one of the stories that they would use to make people not believe in any resurrection of the dead. They're like, well, at, who are you going to be married to if you've been married to multiple people after the resurrection? Dead. This is a ridiculous idea. They tried to make it sound foolish. But Jesus, again, does a judo flip on their question in some ways and, and, and turns it on them. Because Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Which is just kind of this really insulting statement to them. Like, I love the idea that he's like, you have no idea what you're talking about. You're asking the wrong question. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And they were astonished for two reasons. One is Jesus teaching about the resurrection of the dead. He is in on the resurrection of the dead unequivocally. God is God of the living, not of the dead. But also, he just, he just, says, he just said that marriage is a temporary state. That when we come into the eternal life that God has called us for, we are not going to live the same lives that we have now. And when we say that, when we make marriage vows and say until we are parted by death, that's what it means. Somehow, in eternity, we will not operate in the same way that we operate now. And, and our satisfaction in eternity will be different than it is here. And I'm not saying that we won't recognize each other, that we will lose all personality, and that, and that a relationship that we have with family members or spouses will somehow be irrelevant and we won't recognize them anymore. But in a way that we don't understand, marriage as we understand it now becomes one of those old things that passes away as we come into the new world. And this ought to change the way that we look at marriage. Because when we talk about marriage, it's not the most important thing for followers of Jesus. It's not the most important thing that we can pursue, and we ought not to make it the highest level of experience that any human being can have, because it's of secondary importance to being connected to Jesus now and for eternity. It's, this should affect how we talk about it. Jesus is quite clear that marriage is not the only way to follow God, nor the easiest, nor is it the eternal way to follow God. I get concerned because we place marriage on a pedestal sometimes in evangelical culture, and sometimes churches and parachurch organizations act as if Jesus died in order that we would have better working suburban marriages and families, and that's not true at all. The teaching of Jesus is quite clear. Marriage is good, it is a gift from God. Marriage is difficult and should not be undertaken lightly. And marriage is temporary. And this becomes even clearer as Paul begins to teach on this to the Corinthians. And if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's when he, Paul says some fascinating things that I find fascinating. Maybe they're not. I think they're fascinating. First Corinthians chapter seven. Oh, sorry, I screwed this up. Marriage is good. Marriage is hard. Marriage is temporary. So he says this in first uh, in uh, First Corinthians chapter seven. He's talking about married marriage, and Paul himself is unmarried. It's, there's some question as to whether he was married, and then when he began to follow Jesus, his wife may have left him. Some people, scholars believe that. Some people believe that he was widowed. Some people believe that he was never married. We're not quite sure. Um, but uh, certainly at this point in time, uh, Paul is not married. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. What I mean, brothers and sisters, and this is later on in the chapter, is that the time is short, and from the, the now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is fat passing away. I find this completely fascinating. Because when Paul talks to people about marriage, everything is about this is a secondary status. This is not the most important thing that I'm going to talk to you about. 
And Paul is very clear that if you're married, that's good. If you need to get married so that you don't fall into sin, that's a good thing to do. If you can not get married, don't get married. It's not that big a deal. If you're already married, stay married. If you're not married, don't get married. He's, it's, he's trying to take it from this thing that is of primary importance and reframe it as something that is of secondary importance. And he does it in the context of talking about everything in this world should be held loosely. Because the old order of things is going to pass away. Things in their present form are not going to last. So we shouldn't hold on to the things of this world, including marriage, tightly. It's not the most important thing that we're going to do. And it's not the place where we're going to find our ultimate satisfaction and our happiness. That is going to be found in Christ. He continues, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman, a virgin, is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. And I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Faithfulness is important. Marriages are important. But don't feel like it's the supreme act of any human being to be called to that. And, and, and I think it's fascinating that as true followers of Jesus and his disciples, in some way we should be encouraging less marriage. We should be encouraging more people to say that if you do not have to get married, do not get married. And I say that as a married man. I say that as someone who loves my marriage and thinks that it's made me a better and, and more useful person to the Lord. But but we do a terrible job of honoring people that aren't married, and we often in the churches view them as, as damaged goods that have something wrong with them. And we need to stop doing that, because that's not the way that God views things at all. What he's encouraging people to do is to not focus on the family, but focus on Jesus. Focus on his work and hold the things of this world loosely difficult to wrap our heads around, but we ought to focus on the fact that, that the Bible is very incredibly focused, that rather than, than working on our marriages as primary, what, what the Bible is concerned with, what God is calling us to, is that we may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. And this is true whether we are single or whether we are married. Okay? We ought to construct our lives and live in our marriages and in our singleness around devotion to the Lord. Are we focused on things that are eternal? And are we understanding that as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things are added to us? It's a drastic reframing of the way that we look at the world. It's good to be faithful in marriage, and it's important to work on being faithful in marriage and, and pleasing your husband or your wife and working on having your family work well. But it is not the primary act of devotion. And in fact, the Bible would say clearly that if you're expecting your marriage to provide all of your satisfaction and your happiness, you're giving your marriage a burden that it cannot possibly bear. It needs to be found first in Jesus, and only then will our marriages give us the joy that we ought to.
So the question as we want to live right and just and fair in the way of marriage is, is are we living our married lives or our single lives in, in such a way that we demonstrate our primary devotion to the Lord? That our primary devotion is not to ourselves and our own happiness, but to Him and His glory. And this changes the way that the world views marriage as well. So when they want to pick a fight over what marriage is, we can back off that a little bit and say, like, look, God is in control of this thing. And, and, and we understand that this is not the main battlefield for us. Our primary battlefield is in the heart. And, and, and to say, rather than how do you feel about marriage, we ought to be saying, how do you feel about Jesus as the primary way that we live? Because again, we want to live in ways that are right and just and fair. And what is right and just and fair is that if we are married, to do marriage well and to recognize that it's a gift of God, but also recognize that that is not the only or the best way to live. And that the gift of God can also be singleness as well, and living lives of undivided attention to Him and His glory. One of the... One of the uh, I, I'm struck by this... Uh, one of the most influential thinker uh, writers on, I think it was a man named John Scott, who uh, passed away a couple of years ago in his 90s, but he was uh, a single man his entire life. And, and people often asked him about his singleness, especially in our day and age. They were very concerned about where that came from and what decision he made. And, and what was interesting about John Scott is he said he never really made that decision. He just never felt that the Lord had called him into marriage, so he had devoted his attention to other things. And I think that that is something that we ought to be learning well from. Learning that, that, that our happiness is not going to be found necessarily in finding our soul mate, which probably doesn't exist. It's not going to be found in finding uh, a marriage partner because then we'll finally be able to do what God has called us to do. It's going to be found in seeking day to day the will of the Lord in our lives. And if that is for us to be happy in, in marriage connected to another person, until we are parted by death, and that's a beautiful and good thing to do. But mostly our satisfaction and our joy and our purpose is going to be found in directing our attention towards God and what He is calling us to. And doing that without equivocation or without concern for the ways of this world at all. And holding loosely to our marriages, trusting that God will care for them as we seek His will. Pray together. God. We thank you that you have not called us to be alone. And we thank you that for some of us, part of that loneliness is eased in marriage, that you have given some of us partners to walk with. But we also thank you for those who are single, and we ask that, that we ask forgiveness for the times where we have made single people feel as if they were less than. We ask forgiveness for the times when we have made people that you have not given the gift of marriage uh, feel as if they are not truly part of your kingdom or that they are lesser citizens in it. We ask that you would help all of us to live lives of undivided devotion to you. And that as we work on our marriage and our families, that we would do so trusting that, that your kingdom and your glory come first in our lives. We would ask that if we live lives of singleness, that, you would add that, that we would find satisfaction and clarity and purpose in pursuing you wholeheartedly. And that we would not feel that we've been deprived of something because we have not found that. And we ask again that you would help us to truly be your disciples, loving 
you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, because that is what you've called us to do first and most of all. We ask this in the name of your Son.